0: You're listening to the new Mutual Audio Network. Welcome home. The following audio drama is rated R and is recommended restricted for anyone under the age of 17.
1: I'm Jack Ward with our tortoise pilot, David Alt, and this is the Sonic Society, the world's largest showcase of modern audio drama. This week, as we seek to find out where the audioverse went wrong, we're headed to the closest port of Twilight Zone-esque worlds. That's
0: right, and good morning, everyone. This week we have a checksum of sorts, as we drop an RSS sensor at episodes zero and one of Victoria's Lift, an ongoing audio drama featuring a mysterious girl who guides visitors to their transformations. A dark place whose original luster is now lost to time, the unlikely old Victorian building sits overlooked by most on the edge of Pittsburgh, and it all begins right here, on the
1: Sonic Society.
0: Hi, this is Mark Nixon. And I'm the
2: writer for today's episode of The Lift, What Are Jelly Babies? If you enjoy the story, you can find more of my work at shadowsofthedoor.com and you can find more episodes of The Lift at victoriaslift.com.
3: Once upon a time, there was a place that became lost. lost. It is a place where story and substance combine. Where the reality of story shapes thoughts. Where fantasy becomes tangible. This is that place. Those who find themselves here are here to make a choice. (laughs) The choices you made in the past don't matter. But the choice you make now is the one that will set your
1: fate. The matter began, as these affairs usually did, with the reading of an email arriving in Franklin's inbox during the early hours one frosty October morning. Dear sirs, please may I bring to your attention the properties listed for offer on Lot 36. I think you'll find the opening bid more than agreeable, a demonstration of our desire to wrap up affairs in Pittsburgh and move on to our new offices with haste. Yours faithfully, E.D. Cooper. Franklin leaned back in his chair and scoffed. E.D. Cooper was nothing if not persistent, having inundated the office with offers for this particular collection of apartment buildings for weeks now. The firm had initially sent a polite rejection, having little interest in setting up in that area, but as Franklin sipped on his coffee and reluctantly clicked on the link, his eyebrows defied their usual default scowl and raised in surprise. The offer was low, incredibly low, and while the initial intrigue had almost enticed him, his earlier research into the properties rushed to the forefront of his mind and quickly dispelled any potential interest. Beyond the unattractive condition of the buildings, Cooper's eagerness was suspicious and bordered on desperation. He went to delete the email when he was interrupted by the powerful vibrations of his phone humming on the desk. The screen bore the name of his senior business partner, Dennis Yates. Senior through luck rather than skill. Yates was at best an overly enthusiastic sort. The type to buy now and figure out how to turn a profit later, Yates owed his superiority through a large inheritance left by his similarly motivated father. Franklin stared at the phone and exhaled loudly and deliberately. He knew he would be on a plane to Pittsburgh before the end of the week. Two cabs, one plane, and a train journey later, Franklin arrives in Pittsburgh on October 31st, with no hope of returning back home to Boston until the next morning at the earliest. While the metropolis itself boasts a wealth of all-night-themed parties, And the residential areas brim with the laughter of children. It's further west where the roads begin to widen and dip out of sight, where an uncharacteristic stillness envelops the night. Here, the streets are dark and mostly absent of noise, save for the distant roar of traffic along the freeway. The buildings stand as ghosts, seemingly forgotten by a workforce that left mere hours ago. Footsteps of leather soles on pavement echo throughout the lofty, wide streets. And soon, the weary figure of Franklin appears between the looming fortresses of concrete. He gazes absently at an image on his phone, that of his eight-year-old daughter, dressed as a bumblebee. He'd explained how she should dress as something scary for Halloween, but she'd insisted on dressing as she did. As he smiles at the dimples on her cheeks, Franklin feels a stab of guilt. He'd promised to be there for her. He switches off the screen, no longer able to bear her beautiful and loving smile. Predictably, Pittsburgh has been a deeply disappointing venture. After the first few initial minutes of inspecting the properties, Franklin had decided to give up after spotting two major building code violations before he even unpacked his briefcase. And now, as he ambles along the sidewalk in search of a cab, Franklin muses on the possibility of a lawsuit against dear old E.D. Cooper. He ponders the details until his clip-clopping footsteps are joined by the shrill tones of his phone's ringtone. He quickly pulls it out and answers. Trick-a-fucking-treat, Dennis, he snaps. As he briefly listens to his so-called partner, Franklin parts his lips in preparation for a scathing response. Oh yeah, very promising. If you're looking to bury half your tenants in an avalanche of drywall and God knows what else... The two business partners exchange in a back-and-forth that has been performed so often in the past. It may as well be a dance. And you know what makes it fucking worse? Franklin asks, now completely ignoring his ranting partner, his tone now somewhat softer. I told you that I promised Amy I'd take a trick-or-treating tonight. Franklin stops in his steps as he listens to the reply. His eyes narrow. Oh, well, that's very fucking nice, isn't it? Get some fucking kids of your own, Dennis, and then maybe you'll understand. He hangs up the call in a gesture so exaggerated it looks as if he's about to throw the damn thing away. He looks down the barren roads ahead of him and declares his search a fool's errand. It's time to actually pay the extra and call a cab to him. To hell with the company expenses. As still as the night is, the air begins to stir with the sound of distant party-goers hollering into the darkness. Although it soon becomes apparent to Franklin that as the calls grow closer they are not the cries of merriment but of despair he stops dialing and turns an ear to the cries soon the once faint and almost inaudible wails gather in volume traveling toward him with the speed of a swift breeze the rabble of noise seems to dissipate leaving but one voice one that seems to reach for him personally the cries of a child With some hesitation, Franklin drifts toward the noise and passes through the sides of the buildings. The calling continues to amplify, increasing in an intensity so strong it was as if the child were directly in front of him. He seems to be alone in the streets, yet the presence of the child was unquestionable. With the strength of conviction that only a parent can muster, Franklin's doubt is overridden and his speed increases to an all-out run. He passes through an alley, comes across a children's park it makes sense to him that a child might be here but he is very much alone and as such he calls into the dark just to be sure hello he elicits no response are you all right in return he is answered with an echo a distorted reverberation of a voice that seems to form from the very air around him he stands confused But soon, the echoes converge with enough clarity to finally become intelligible.
3: Please help me! Please
1: help me! Where are you? he replies. The obscure nature of the discourse is not lost upon him, but urgency overrules his logic. I'm close, came the now more clear reply. The echo seems to shift from all around Franklin until it seems to come from directly behind him. He turns and is greeted by the sight of a grand Victorian-style apartment building several feet in front of him, one he somehow hadn't fully registered when he rushed into the area, despite its grand nature. A flicker of blue light catches his eye on the ninth story, and he looks up toward the illumination as it dances from out of the window. It takes a moment for Franklin to recognize the sparks of raw electricity. As he tries to fathom what exactly is going on inside, an elongated shadow dances upon the walls within the window. It seems to move with little urgency, despite the obvious danger. Hey! calls Franklin. In response, it instantly stops in its tracks and seemingly begins to stretch as the owner moves away from the light and toward the window. The figure appears and leans out to get a closer look at Franklin. With the ever-flickering light behind them, it is not possible for Franklin to make out details, and he could instead only see the silhouette of a stranger as it rests long fingers on the window sill. "'What's going on?' he bellows at the stranger. "'Do you need me to call someone?' Motionless, the stranger simply stares down at him. Franklin squints his eyes as if to make out some hidden detail, but all he can see was that the proportions of the figure seem unnaturally slender. A sense of unease begins to rest upon him, as if he were a prey making eye contact with a natural predator. Suddenly, the large glass doors to the building swing open, and the now familiar voice of the child emits from within,
3: I'm inside. Please hurry.
1: Despite the somewhat supernatural events transpiring, Franklin seems unable to avert his gaze from the shadow at the window.
3: Please, I need a
1: Beckons the voice. Franklin slowly pulls his gaze away from the figure as he walks dutifully to the open doors. As he passes the threshold, he feels a disagreeable sensation hit him instantly a feeling in his head, a disorientation like a sudden change of air pressure. It takes a few moments for Franklin to acclimatize to his surroundings, and he holds his head, trying to stop the world from spinning. With a drawn out groan, he lifts his head. And looks around the room begins to steady and as he takes in his surroundings he recognizes the layout of a rather typical lobby having seen many such rooms in his long career he finds nothing out of the ordinary other than the somewhat dated decorations and lack of lighting in fact the room is completely without power and the only illumination provided is from the street lamps outside the light seems to be enough and via the dim glow, he can see to his left a grandly decorated elevator, coupled by a narrow stairwell. Before long, a sound directly above him draws his gaze toward the ceiling. A resonance of banging, like that of pipes cooling down, but somehow very much not like the natural movement of a building. Something far more heavy and deliberate. As he lowers his gaze, he catches the sight of a little girl creeping down the stairs. No older than nine or ten, she walks a tad uneasily, the steps seeming almost alien to her. Upon reaching the bottom, she seems to congratulate herself before returning her attention to her guest. As she enters what little light there is, Franklin sees telltale glistening on her cheeks and puffiness around the eyes. Having seen the same looks of distress on his own daughter after a fright or even a tantrum, Franklin, immediately forgetting his disorientation, slowly drops to one knee and offers her his best smile. Hey, sweetheart, you okay? He asks as softly as he can. His tone carries the accents of sympathy, but he keeps it reassuring, as if to tell her there are no monsters under the bed. The child wipes her cheeks, suddenly self-conscious and returns the smile.
3: Thank you for coming.
1: Her voice lands uneasily upon his ears, sounding unearthly, yet still very much that of a young child. No problem, he replies. Immediately a thought seems to strike him, and he continues and adds, Victoria. Although surprised at his own revelation, the girl, or Victoria, folds her arms and smirks, clearly proud of herself. She takes a few steps toward him.
3: You understand,
1: don't you? I, uh, I think I do, he replies, much to his own surprise. Then, standing upright, he surveys the darkened lobby and tries to offer a sense of authority. The building isn't working the way it's supposed to, is it? He continues, incredulously. The last of the unease he has experienced since entering the building begins to wash away, like he'd been walking on sand all day and is only now finding firm footing.
3: That's right,
1: Victoria responds, cocking her head as she scrutinizes her new friend. He seems to be acclimatizing well. Was that you upstairs? No. The two suddenly stop. As somewhere distant in the building, there comes a loud noise. A knocking, almost jaunty in its nature. Taunting. Looking back down to his new companion, Franklin sees her wide-eyed fear as she looks toward the ceiling, her arms gripping each other. Hey, he says, waving a hand to gain her attention. It's just the pipes. But he is interrupted by the second very deliberate sound above them. A large shifting of movement, followed by a horrific tearing noise. The lights of the lobby flicker to life, but quickly grow brighter until the two have to close their eyes. Soon, as if too much power is fed into the light bulbs, they smash causing Victoria to gasp, and the room is once more plunged into darkness. A distant echo resonates through the building, a noise Franklin could swear as laughter. Slowly, it dies away. His unease, however, does not. We are not alone, are we?
3: I'm usually mostly alone,
1: she replies, struggling to get the words out.
3: But there are others who live here. Others I don't know about.
1: You mean, people in parts you don't know about?
3: No. This place is my home. It's not a normal place, but it's mine. The thing is, it doesn't play by the rules. And it can do things even I don't completely understand. Sometimes the doors lead to a room I want to go.
1: She hesitates.
3: And sometimes they lead to somewhere else in the lift, I know exactly where it will go, but earlier today, I opened the door to a place that felt... different.
1: Different? Franklin asks, almost with dread.
3: I think one of the rooms was linked to somewhere it shouldn't. now... and now, maybe something got out of the room when I ran off. Ran off? I knew it wasn't meant to be there, so I ran! Hey,
1: that's okay. Grown-ups get scared, too.
3: I know that! Believe me! But this is different. Whatever got out of there is breaking whatever it can find. If it breaks too much, then it can break the building entirely. And we don't want that. Trust me.
1: She put her hands into his.
3: I wouldn't want to release anything that came from in there. I tried to go back up there, but the power went out. I don't like the dark. Not when my lift is broken.
1: The most human thing in the world is to want to protect the child. And in apparent, this instinct overrides any known force on this earth. His fear of whatever he may find upstairs seems to disappear in that moment. And the decision to help Victoria is instant. Right then, he begins to ask, what do you need? Victoria smiles.
3: I just need you to lock away whatever is up there, find it and lock it in the room. Then the building will fix itself.
1: A series of loud tears rattles through the building once more and Franklin finds his newfound heroism sweep out of him at an alarming rate. Um, sure, he acknowledges. Victoria runs over to Franklin and wraps herself around his legs.
3: Thank you, and please, please be careful. You're a nice man.
1: You think? She smiles. Absolutely. And so, after spending some minutes discussing the layout of the building and fetching a crowbar for Franklin though whether this was simply for Franklin's peace of mind or that it could actually deal viable protection was not Victoria's place to say. His first tentative steps into the darkness is followed swiftly by the most unusual shrieking noise from high above, a shrieking too animal to be human, but too malevolent to be beast. If there had been any doubt in Franklin's mind, it was now gone. The thing upstairs was of unearthly or even unholy origin, and it meant to bear him harm. Against his natural instincts, he takes another step, and his bravery is rewarded with silence. He looks back on Victoria once more and offers a smile. She smiles in return, but as Franklin turns and continues his ascent, he cannot help but remember the quivering of the girl's lips as they had tried to form the necessary shape soon he disappears from sight and his presence is replaced by the steady echoing of his steps as he continues upward victoria watching on almost begins to relax before the harsh shrieking and tearing cuts through the night causing her to flinch as her new friend seems to disappear into the noise she wonders if she will ever see him again and if she will ever be able to live with herself if she does not The rattling disturbances of the building continue to haunt the stairwell, but Franklin's journey past the first two stories of the building had been met without incident, beyond the occasional slip and fumble. But as Franklin reaches the third floor, he is greeted by the vision of a long and darkened corridor. In the midst of the shadows, he suddenly stops as he catches sight of a solitary figure standing in the darkness. Whether it can see him or not, he cannot tell nor does he care to find out. Instead, he grips harder onto his would-be weapon and resumes his path up to the fourth floor with as little noise as he can. He steals a glance behind his back as the stairs begin to turn a corner and could swear he sees a pair of eyes looking up at him from the stairwell archway. As Franklin continues, he is satisfied to realize that he is alone in his ascent and the watcher below remains just a spectator. With growing unease and faster speed, he passes the fourth, fifth, and sixth floors, hearing the same noises throughout the building, only louder. He pulls on his tie to loosen it, as the flights of stairs begin to take their toll on the office-bound property dealer. The throbbing of his heart and blood rushing in his ears becomes a swelling noise that he cannot ignore by the time he reaches the fifth story, and he stops to catch his breath. He was almost grateful for the distress going on within his body, but if only it could drown out the ever-present demented noises of the intruder above. Upon eventually reaching the seventh story, Franklin's attention is caught by a scurrying of movement toward the end of the darkened hallway. And although he has heard many strange things in the building, Franklin at first considers the presence to be merely that of a dog. Indeed, the movements are erratic accompanying the scuttling of nails on the thinly carpeted floor. Soon, he hears the tearing of something being pulled apart. The source of destruction is soon revealed as the would-be canine seemingly succeeds in pulling several wires from the wall, ripping their way along the dusty wallpaper and clay walls as they are torn out. The hallway is suddenly illuminated by strobed lighting as the snap and sparks of loose electricity escape from the copper housing. It is in this moment that Franklin is forced to dispel his previous notion, and his eyes are greeted by the true sight of the creature at the end of the hall. No dog could use a paw, no, an arm, to pull the wiring out. And indeed, these events have so clearly transpired, as the wires sit still gripped by long and pale, twig-like fingers. And the arm itself, or the elongated idea of an arm, is seemingly nothing but bone and lean muscle, The thing, so impossibly beast-like in appearance, somehow possesses an unmistakably human quality. Whatever this abomination is, it had started life as a man. Franklin involuntarily gasps in an expression of pure shock, his body now experiencing a new echelon of sheer terror in the time it takes for a second to pass. In the dying moments of light, The thing that has been preoccupied with sabotage turns and looks directly at him. Shaggy, black strands of hair dangle greasily from its large, almost pointed head, while inexplicably sharp-edged ears protrude prominently from the thin hair. The eyes, which glare toward him with an intensity only amplified in the harsh blue strobing light, meet with Franklin's and though he is unable to avert his gaze from the fiery orbs, Franklin can tell that the creature is beginning to smile. The last of the electricity sparks out of the wiring, and then the hallway is dark again. Franklin's heart feels as if it is lodged into his very throat, as if each beat causes the damn thing to jump further up his gullet. The fear paralyzes him as he dares not move in the darkness. The unnatural beast he first glimpsed through the ninth-story window has made its way down to meet him, and now it shifts even closer, only a few yards ahead. If Franklin doesn't escape, the game is surely over, and Victoria will be next. Franklin! Victoria half whispers, half shouts up the stairs.
3: Franklin! Franklin!
1: The sound of Victoria's new friend's journey up the stairwell had faded some time ago, leaving the child to simply pace about the lobby, occasionally glancing upward as the briefest flickers of light frequent the building. And though she is quite used to waiting for her guests to find their own way around the building, now she stands powerless and alone. In a rare moment of her unnaturally long life in this place, she once again feels like a child. It's been a long time, since she's felt this way. But even she needs to remind herself from time to time that she is no mere child. With a resolution to help her guest, Victoria lifts herself onto the stairs and makes her way upward.
3: Please be okay, Franklin, she whimpers. I'm so sorry I sent you up there.
1: The insidious noises up high in the building have quieted now, leaving Victoria alone with her thoughts as she traverses up the stairs. But the quiet causes her to feel quite uncomfortable, and in the silence comes only a sensation of certainty that she had sent a good man to his death. She counts every step, as if the task will restore some normality to her senses. Passing entrances to corridors and ignoring them, whether they be illuminated or remain enshrouded in darkness, she continues, resolute. Yet every so often, her concentration breaks and the certainty of Franklin's demise is brought to the forefront of her mind. No, she has to focus. She needs to be brave.
3: 255, 256, 257.
1: As she climbs higher, focusing on each step, she casts her eyes upward and sees across the dimly lit stretch of stairs a figure standing on the stairwell. Franklin, she wonders... Perhaps not. There is someone looking down at her. Of only that, is she sure? The notion, however, that Franklin would simply be standing waiting for her was, of course, unlikely. Dread begins to fill her instantly. Despite the fact that it only works as intended when the building works, she still misses her music box and wishes she hadn't left it behind. How long has she controlled this place? Did everything within the building bear good intentions toward her? Surely not. Relief comes in the form of a gesture as the figure raises its right arm and points down the hallway to the side. And then, completely without sound, it walks away up the stairwell and is enveloped by the darkness. Victoria smiles. Victoria smiles. Perhaps it had been an old friend or a previous guest who had chose to stay becoming something else entirely. It had been known to happen. Passing through the doorway, she immediately sees a shape in the darkness. Franklin. He sits, slumped against the wall, cold sweat running down his forehead. And, although there is little light to immediately reassure him that the approaching figure is Victoria, he nonetheless remains at ease. The building can no longer provide greater horror than the one he has already seen. In her haste to check on her new friend, Victoria's foot makes contact with the shape of a hand on the floor. Looking down, she shrieks at the elongated and pincer-like fingers. She takes a step back instinctively as she surveys the beast laying dead on the floor. The thing that had threatened to not only destroy her home, but to release every dark force it contained, lay with the left side of its face shattered, giving the head an oddly hollow appearance. She looks to Franklin, who suddenly realizes such a sight is not suitable for a child, ignoring the truth about the girl. He releases his grip on the bloodied crowbar as she helps him to his feet, a gesture more kind than practical due to her short stature. She allows him to cover her eyes. Maybe he needed to be a dad right now. A glint of silvery light dances from the small, round object in the creature's hand, and Franklin leans in closer and reaches for it. Is that a pocket watch? He wonders aloud. Victoria takes his reaching hand in hers and pulls him forward.
3: You don't want that, trust me. Besides, it's got a scratch on it.
1: Franklin casts one last glance over his shoulder at the creature and the object in its grasp, and he allows the tiny girl to lead him away. As the two hold hands and walk down the corridors, The lights begin to slowly come alive with a dull glow as the building begins to restore itself. You know, she says, breaking the silence.
3: I think I have a massive bag of jelly babies somewhere for your little girl.
1: Ah, that'd be lovely, he replies, a weary tone about him. Then, as they walk along, he says, What are jelly babies? Thank you for listening to our Halloween episode of The Lift. If you enjoyed today's episode, join us again for the next fantastic episode in two weeks. Today's episode featured a story by Mark Nixon, What Are Jelly Babies? If you'd like more information on Mark and his work, please visit him at shadowsatthedoor.com and follow him on Twitter at at shadowsatdoor. Artwork for today's show was created by Jeanette Andromeda. If you'd like more information on Jeanette and her work, please visit horrormade.com and follow her on Twitter at Horror underscore Made. Please help others find our little lost place. Share the show and help us grow. The best support you can give us is to retweet, repost, and share the link to victoriaslift.com, and of course, this episode with your friends. If you like this episode, send us a tweet or an email, let us know. Follow us on Twitter at Victoria's Lift and find us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Victoria's Lift. You can subscribe to the show in Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, or Google. For those of you with a podcatcher, the feed for this show is feeds.feedburner.com forward slash Victoria's Lift. Coming soon to iTunes. All works read in this audio recording and associated music and artwork are copyright of their respective creators and may not be used in any form without their permission. Dramatic reading performed by Daniel Foytek. That's me. The voice of Victoria Bigglesworth Hayes was performed by Amber Collins. The lift opening theme music was composed and recorded by Kimberly Henninger and Sean Park of Cathedral Sounds, cathedralsounds.org. The lift closing theme music was composed and recorded by We Talk of Dreams. WeTalkofDreams.com. This episode was scored by Steven Matiko of WideEyedOtter.com You can also follow Steve on Twitter at s underscore Matiko. Incidental music for this episode was performed by Kevin McLeod of Encompatech.com and used with his permission. Check the show notes for titles and credits. The Lift is a ninth-story studio's production. NinthStory.com Creator and producer, Daniel Foytek Executive producer and co-creator Cynthia Loman. Full show notes with links and artwork can be found at VictoriasLift.com forward slash S1E0 I can help you Can you hear the music? Can you
3: hear the music? Times, times, I am here to die, Who made Detroit? Detroit.
0: This is Nelson W. Piles, and I'm the author for today's episode of The Lift, The Basement. If you enjoy the story, you can find out more about my work and other things at NelsonWPiles.com. Discover more episodes of The Lift at VictoriasLift.com.
3: upon a time, there was a place that became lost. became lost. It is a place where story and substance combine, where the reality of story shapes thoughts, where fantasy becomes tangible. This is that place. Those who find themselves here are here to make a choice. <laughs> the choices you made in the past don't matter you make now is the one that will set
1: your fate. The elevator door opened, and much to the surprise of Jefferson, he was in the exact same place he'd been before. It had seemed like an eternity that he'd been on this thing, and he couldn't for the life of him remember how he'd gotten there in the first place. He looked out into the dimly lit space before him, and like the other hundred or so times before had no desire at all to leave the elevator at all. He looked at the list of floors and punched the number 8. The doors closed slowly and the thing began to move. Or so it felt. He watched the numbers ascend one at a time until it read 8. Then the elevator paused and stopped. There was a ding and the doors began to open. His eyes were fixed on the light display over the doors, and at the very last second, the number jumped back down to the letter B. Hellfire, he muttered as he looked once again into the vast emptiness before him. He slumped. He was tired and pissed. Maybe, the little voice inside his head began, you should man up and take a look. He nodded and sighed. What the hell, right? It didn't look like anything dangerous. Hell, it was the basement of a nine-floor building. What's the worst it could be, right? He took out his cell phone and looked at it, almost sadly. No reception. But it did have a light function on it, so that would be helpful. He engaged it and held it out in front, slowly walking into the dark basement. The light wasn't very strong but it would keep him from falling on his ass. The elevator doors behind him shut, and he whirled around to see that it had already been called to another floor. Damn, he said to no one. He debated hitting the up button, but he figured he'd save that for later. At least it was something different than the stupid view of the elevator. He turned and began to walk. There was nothing at all of note in this basement that he could tell. No storage boxes or tools or even garbage. A basement was for things that you didn't need. A basement is where you put things you don't want to look at anymore. Or things that aren't of use to anyone. A place for things unwanted. The attic was for the good holiday decorations and hand-me-down clothes for the kids and such. But the basement? That was a place for things best forgotten. But this place had absolutely nothing. There wasn't a single thing here. Hello? He called out, his West Virginia accent echoing in the dark place. Anybody here? He heard nothing but his own footsteps and his breathing. Hello? He called again. He shone the light next to him, and still nothing at all. He walked a little further, and he came upon a door with a sign that surprised him. It was his first name. He blinked a few times. But there it was, gold lettering on a black background. Jefferson. All nine letters, neatly printed and looking brand new. As if someone had been waiting for him to find it. He walked closer to it and examined it intently. He took a finger and ran it along the name. Then he knocked. The voice of a little girl came from behind, nearly making him yelp in surprise.
3: You don't have to knock, silly,
1: she said. Jefferson whirled and saw a girl of about nine with long curly hair and pigtails, wearing a purple dress. She looked at him with her head cocked to one side while holding a small music box. She held no expression on her face that he could identify. "Uh, Jesus, uh, you scared me there, Jefferson said with a nervous laugh. She simply kept looking at him, her head cocked to one side. Um, so you live down here? He asked. She said nothing. Is there nobody here? That's why I shouldn't knock. Again, she looked at him, not even blinking. What's the matter, darling? A cat got your tongue? He laughed a little.
3: (laughs) I haven't got a cat,
1: she said. Well, uh, that there's just a figure of speech.
3: My name's Victoria,
1: she said flatly. Well, hi, he said. I'm Jefferson. I know. He looked puzzled. You do? She nodded.
3: How else could I get your name on the door?
1: A cold chill crawled through him, the likes of which he'd never felt. My name? That's for me?
3: Well, it certainly isn't for me,
1: Victoria said.
3: Who else would it be for? "I
1: I don't understand this, he said. Where the hell am I?
3: You're with me, in the basement, she said. This is a bit new for me as well, but I'm sure we'll make the best of it.
1: The best of it? The best of what?
3: Your particular situation. This is going to be something I've never done, although I'm quite sure I can do it.
1: Uh, Do what? She turned away for a moment, then turned back to him.
3: Why don't you open the door?
1: She said. No, he said. Although he had a nagging suspicion that he would.
3: Let me tell you what happens. She began. Normally, I would play my music box and would find a floor for you. You'd tell me a story, and I do so love stories.
1: So I just need to tell you a story and we can get out of here?
3: I'm not finished. I said normally, although... None of this is really normal, is it?
1: Jefferson said nothing.
3: But you're a special case, aren't you? You have oodles of stories all burning inside of you, haven't you? Reckon I do. Well, this will be quite different,
1: she said, and placed her music box on the ground in front of her. Jefferson watched this and then looked at the door behind him. His own name looked back at him, almost accusatorily. So, he began, turning back to face the little girl. I just need to tell you a good story. No. She replied.
3: You don't have good stories. You are empty of good stories. That's why it took so long to get you here. That's why you haven't heard the music box. There isn't music for someone like you. Uh, uh,
1: Like me? He asked, nearly choking. You don't know me.
3: But I do and I certainly wish you'd never come to my lift. So I'd like you to open the door, please.
1: Jefferson looked into Victoria's eyes and found no life in them. He shook. Why? (sighs) Victoria gave a frustrated grunt and shifted her weight onto her left foot impatiently.
3: Today, because it is a different day, I'm going to tell you a story. And after I tell it, You're not going to walk into that room.
1: She paused.
3: You're going to run into it.
1: Jefferson felt his feet buckle slightly, and that seemed to bring him some semblance of his old self for a moment. Who the hell do you think you're talking to, little girl? He nearly yelled. Do you have any idea who you're talking to? From behind him, he heard something move. A pained scraping sound that seemed to get closer at an increasing pace. Before he could turn to see what it was, he felt something slam into the back of his legs, sending him backwards. He threw his arms out and yelped as he abruptly landed into a heavy wooden chair.
3: I know exactly who and what I'm talking to, thank you.
1: She said coldly.
3: And now you're going to listen to my story and not say another word.
1: Jefferson's heart was pounding in his chest and he decided that for now he'd listen and then he'd take care of this little girl his way she began her story
3: once upon a time there was a young princess who lived in a very small kingdom she was a beautiful princess and although she was young she was so very smart However, she lived with a very cruel father, the king of the land. He hated everything, including his wife, his kingdom, and most of all, his beautiful daughter. He never missed an opportunity to tell his wife and daughter how miserable they had made his life. He never once said a kind word to either, unless it was in his best interest to do so, which wasn't often. After years of being told she was useless, ugly, and stupid... The princess told the long-suffering queen that perhaps it was in their best interest to leave the castle and their cruel king forever. But where would we go? the queen asked. We're royalty. Our faces are on the money. We'd have to live like common people. Besides, we're royalty. The princess shook her head. Father is a very bad man, she replied. It wouldn't matter where we were as long as we were away from him. It took some doing, but the princess managed to convince the queen that they should leave immediately and let the king rot in the castle alone. Or so the princess had thought. The queen, who wasn't much better than the king in some ways, ran to the king and told him of the princess's plan. The king flew into a rage and struck the queen, not once, not twice, but three times. He stormed off to find the princess. The queen, who immediately regretted her actions and knew where the princess was hiding, rushed to tell her to leave at once, before he found her. Although the princess was upset that the queen had told him, she forgave her mother and ran to flee the castle. The princess ran to the secret passage that led to the stables. She negotiated her way into the darkness with a hand out to avoid any sharp turns. She found a doorknob that led into the stable. "'turned it and swung the heavy door open. "'There stood the king, impatiently waiting for her. "'After all I've done for you, this is how you repay my kindness!' "'He roared at her, but the little princess stood up straight. "'She thought about all he had done for her, "'all the hitting, all the terrible things he had said to her, "'all the awful things behind closed doors that he had done to her, "'things that she could never, ever forget.' "'After all you've done for me, which in no way included kindness, I am doing us both a favour, she said. "'You will never leave,' he yelled. "'But why?' "'Because I hate you.' "'She looked at him and suddenly it struck her. "'No you don't,' she said quietly. "'You don't hate me or mother. You hate yourself.' The king looked as if he'd been slapped because he knew, beyond all shadow of a doubt, that she was right. And this simple fact enraged him like nothing else had ever done. His face twisted into a mask of anger and he ran towards the princess. He ran very fast, but at the last minute the princess moved aside and stuck out her foot, tripping the king. who fell down into a dark passageway behind her. Quickly, she closed the door. She looked around and saw a large hammer. She grabbed the heavy hammer and began to hit the doorknob until it broke in half. She heard the knob fall to the other side of the door. What do you think you're doing, the king yelled from the other side of the door. The princess said nothing as she heard the king. He was now alone in the dark passage of the castle, pounding on the door that would never open. She turned slowly and walked from the stable and never looked back. He wandered angrily through the passageway for days, realising that he did hate himself more than anything else in the world. Finally, he fell somewhere in the darkness, and never got up again. The king was presumed dead, and the queen became ruler of the kingdom. She tried in vain to find the princess, but she was never ever found. She wept, but also hoped that she was still alive that she was happy at last.
1: Jefferson looked at Victoria with wide, terrified eyes. How could she know? He thought. He realized he was starting to drool and quickly wiped his mouth.
3: So you see,
1: she said after a moment,
3: the king did things out of his own hatred for himself. Isn't that the saddest thing you've ever heard? A hatred that made him cruel and evil.
1: But I... "'Don't hate myself?' Jefferson said quietly.
3: "'Oh, you do?'
1: Victoria said.
3: "'And it isn't an excuse either. I'm sort of leaning toward hating you myself, if we're going to be honest.'
1: This snapped Jefferson out of his stupor, and he glared at the little girl before him. "'Who the hell do you think you are to judge me?' he snarled. "'You let me out of this goddamn basement right now, you hear me?' I am. Victoria began picking up her music box.
3: Victoria Bigglesworth Hayes. A little girl with a music box. A little girl much like your daughter once was. You're in my building. You wrote my lift. And you're where I think you should be right now.
1: What the fuck does that mean? Victoria made a sour milk face.
3: No need to be cheeky, Jefferson. Language, please.
1: Jefferson took a step forward. I reckon your daddy didn't ever discipline you, did he? He said, a small smile breaking out on his face. Maybe you need a little discipline to teach you a lesson.
3: I know what discipline means. You never showed any to your daughter. A little girl like me who just wanted her father to love her. And you want to teach me a
1: lesson? Victoria's eyes began to burn a pale green color that glowed in the dimly lit basement. She opened the music box, and it began to play an unusual tune. Jefferson's smile faded upon hearing the song. He knew it, and knew it well. Close it, he said. No, she replied. As the tune played, the basement seemed to close in around them. Jefferson looked behind him. There was no longer an endless space, just the door. Everything was moving toward him, and even the space behind Victoria seemed to vanish. The tune played on and on. He turned that off.
3: You need to learn a bit more than discipline,
1: Victoria said. Her voice louder as the basement compressed. He stepped back into the door. He turned and looked. His nameplate was still there, the green light reflecting from Victoria's eyes. He turned back and saw Victoria inches from him. He yelped, and out of instinct, he grabbed the doorknob and turned it. Bye bye, Victoria said as Jefferson pushed his way through. He slammed it behind him and rested for a moment on the door. He couldn't hear the music box anymore, and he sighed. He lifted his head and looked at the room he was now occupying. Except it wasn't a room. It seemed to be a long stone passageway, lit every 20 feet or so with a torch. The passageway seemed to go on forever. He swallowed back the bile rising in his throat and tried to steady himself. At least there's a lot, he thought. Suddenly, he watched the torches go out, one by one, from a distance. Each one made a little noise as they extinguished themselves. He began to panic. As the darkness got closer and closer, he heard something else come with it. The tune from the music box. It began to play, over and over, louder and louder. It was the only thing he had ever bought his daughter when she was a little girl. The torches continued to go out, and the tune became louder. The tune was now being accompanied by a voice, singing along.
3: Itsy Bitsy Spout.
1: It was Kara's voice.
3: Down came the rain and washed the spider out.
1: His little girl.
3: Out came the sun and dried up all the rain.
1: His dead little girl.
3: And the it'sy bitsy spider found up the spout again.
1: His hated little girl. Jefferson screamed as the final torch blinked out. Thank you for listening to the premiere episode of The Lift. Today's episode featured a story by Nelson W. Piles, The Basement. If you'd like more information on Nelson and his work, please visit nelsonwpiles.com and follow him on Twitter at nelsonwpiles. Artwork for today's show was created by Alex Murd. If you'd like more information on Alex and her work, please visit crazedpixel.com and follow her on Twitter at crazedpixel. Please help others find our little lost place. Share the show and help us grow. The best support you can give us is to retweet, repost, and share the link to victoriaslift.com. Follow us on Twitter at Victoria's Lift, And find us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash victoriaslift. Don't miss the next episode. Subscribe to the show in Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, or Google and coming soon in iTunes this show's feed is feeds.feedburner.com forward slash Victoria's Lift all works read in this audio recording and associated music and artwork are copyright of their respective creators and may not be used in any form without their permission dramatic reading performed by Daniel Foytek that's me the voice of Victoria Bigglesworth Hayes was performed by Amber Collins. The lift opening theme music was composed and recorded by Kimberly Henninger and Sean Park of Cathedral Sounds, cathedralsounds.org. The lift closing theme music was composed and recorded by Nico Vitaze of We Talk of Dreams, wetalkofdreams.com. This episode was scored by Kimberly Henninger and Sean Park of Cathedral Sounds, Incidental music in this episode was performed by Kevin McLeod of Incompetech.com and used with his permission. Check the show notes for titles and credits. The Lift is a Ninth Story Studios production, NinthStory.com. Creator and producer, Daniel Foytek. Executive producer and co-creator, Cynthia Lohman. Full show notes with links and artwork can be found at VictoriasLift.com forward slash S1E1.
2: societies rise and societies fall. When the time comes, one society steps forward to build a better future. The Wicked Library, Kettle Whistle Radio, Night Story Podcast, Prog Watch, Red Horse Radio, The Lift, History Goes Bumble, Listen, the M-Writing Podcast, Society 13, Rebuilding Society, one podcast at a time. The critically acclaimed author of Demons, Dolls and Milkshakes returns with 15 tales of horror and suspense, with Everything Here is a Nightmare. From zombies in the Old West, to a young boy tempted by the devil, from vampires with romantic longing, to an abandoned lighthouse haunted by a vengeful spirit, from a serial killer getting unholy justice, to an haunted English race guard, Nelson W. Piles invites you to explore the landscape of fear, suspense, and horror. Take his hand and hold on tight. Remember that whatever you find there, whatever you see, no matter what you might think it could be, know this. Everything here is a nightmare by Nelson W. Piles Available in paperback and Kindle at Amazon.com by Burning Bowl Publishing
0: And our sensor is in place and that's this week's show Please check for all show notes at sonicsociety.org and we'll see you back here next week Until then, I'm David Alt,
3: And I'm Jack Ward Take care, everyone
0: If an infinite amount of monkeys with typewriters could create all of Shakespeare's plays in an infinite amount of time, certainly you could create a radio script masterpiece in one month. (laughs) Take part in Ned's Room, the National Audio Drama Script Writing Month, where you are challenged to create an audio drama script before the end of February. And this year, you get an extra day. What do you get if you succeed? Why, the honor and excitement of knowing you did it! Plus a nifty reward certificate. Ooh, uh. How do you go about entering Ned's room? How would I know? I'm just an announcer and I... Oh, oh, thank you, monkey. Uh, for information, go online to sonicsociety.org slash nadsrim. Where are the bananas? Oh, okay. That's N-A-D-S-W-R-I-M as in National Audio Drama Script Writing Month. And to give you a head start, I offer you a first line for your script. Charlie, shouting, Hey, where did all these monkeys come from? The rest is up to you! Enter today! Not you, stupid infinite monkey.